another episode of Conversation with the Chef. I'm Joe Ritty, and I love sharing with you the conversations I get to have with talented and passionate chefs. It's the backstory, if you will, to the food they're putting up. I begin today by acknowledging the Māori tribes of Te Ikaroa, North Island, where my guest is, as well as the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional custodians of the lands and airwaves where my part of the conversation took place. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Today I'm talking to Lucas Parkinson. In 2017, chef and owner Lucas Parkinson established Ode Conscious Dining in Wanaka, Aotearoa, after spending over a decade developing his skill and passion for food in Aotearoa and overseas. Lucas quickly gained recognition after Ode was named one of New Zealand's top 100 restaurants at both the 2018 and 2019 Cuisine Good Food Awards, receiving the One to Watch and One Hat accolades the Southern Hemisphere equivalent of one Michelin star. Committed to influencing ethical food decisions within Aotearoa, he's been called Aotearoa's most sustainable chef. When Lucas messaged me and wondered whether I'd like to hear his story, I jumped at the chance. This is a story of very high highs and extremely low lows. At the height of Ode's success, the restaurant burned down, and then, once he'd painstakingly built up the business again, Lockdown after lockdown in New Zealand and the fallout from, the, from those forced Lucas's hand again. Lucas was so honest and so generous with what he shared with me and I think that this is probably one of the most important conversations I've had about mental health as well as what it means to succeed and survive in the hospitality industry. Hi Lucas, how are you? Joe, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Thanks for getting in touch with me. I've been doing a bit of investigation and you've got a pretty interesting story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, Lucas, where are you right now? Obviously in Aotearoa. Yeah, uh, I've moved back to my home city of Auckland and I lived out in the beautiful native forest of Tirangi. Wow. Um, yeah, I'm from... Ototahi, Christchurch, and there's always been a rivalry between the North Island and the South Island, but I know that um, what you're talking about, where you live now, is very beautiful, so... Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. Let's start, perhaps, at the beginning, because I always like to know a chef's journey, and um, and I was reading a little bit about you this morning, and was interested to see that you start off as a panel beater, but then found your way into a pizzeria, and from there you've kept going. So, can you tell me what brought you into hospitality? Uh, you know, I was actually uh, in trouble in a bad way with some worse people in the city. Um, my family shipped me off to Italy for three months to keep me safe, and then when I came back, it still wasn't quite safe. So then they sent me down to Ohakuni, where we had a batch, mm. and I'd done the winter there, snowboarding. Um, my first day there, there was a place called Italian Cafe, and I'm half Italian, and I walked in and said, I'm half Italian, do you have any jobs? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, old Chef Go, uh, I think he was about 64 or 65 at the time, the head chef there, said, yep, can you make pizzas? And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course I can make pizzas, and uh, yeah. I didn't really know how to make pizzas, but <laughs> uh, and he gave me the job, and it just it, it clicked, it flew, it was great. Um, I had a good time snowboarding. Came back for a second season, 
And after the second season, my father asked, are you still going to be a panel beater? Nah, nah, I'm not going back to that. He goes, well, have you thought about uh, training as a chef? What do you do? He goes, sure, you can go to school for it. So we looked it up, and there was Auckland Hotel and Chef Training School, and I applied, and I got in. And um, that's really where it kicked off. I got there, and I had a great tutor called Peter Cartwright, and um, he really fueled that passion in me. And it's the first time in, in, in my schooling history that I was deeply interested, and, and, and I studied, and I really, really wanted to pass and turn up every day on time, and I just fully got into it. And then I ended up finishing top of my class, had to go for an internship, and I walked down the road from my flat where I was living, and uh, there was a restaurant called Taboo, run by uh, a chef called Ben Convery and his uh, ex-partner, Rebecca. I walked in and said, oh, I'll work for free for a few weeks. I've got to pass my internship, and he had that gleam in his eye. Free workers, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I got my job, and on my first night there, I realized that being the top student in the school meant basically nothing in a real kitchen. Um I got screamed at, yelled at, had a broom thrown at me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was intense. But I, I, on the first night, I saw a perfectly square potato gratin go up on the park. And something in my mind just clicked. And I was, wow, look at that shape. Look how beautiful it is. Look at how amazing that one thing is. And then I was, over the following weeks, I was just looking around the kitchen. I quickly got demoted to kitchen hand. <laughs> And uh, I just loved the camaraderie of it, even though he was a, pretty much a psychopathic chef who was super old school. You know, you do it his way, you fuck it up, he's going to go nuts. And I definitely had that. But um, I liked the discipline. I liked the camaraderie. I really liked the organization, how five chefs each had one component from a dish and they'd all come up together at the same time. Mm. And it was like... Like watching a choreographed dance just going well, and and, and the buzz went of the night where the chefs wouldn't yell and everything went well, you just felt on cloud nine. I felt on cloud nine. Yeah. Um, so I stayed on as a got moved up to commie chef and stayed there for a while, and then the snow bug kicked in again, and I went back down to Oakuni and got a job at the Powderhorn Chateau as a as a, as a commie chef. Um, and that was great. I had a great time. Uh, I met my, well, now ex-partner. But, um, and uh, I'd done the, the season there, and I had a good friend from America, and he was always saying, come over to America. So I packed my bags, and I had an American grandfather-in-law, and um, he was passed by then. But uh, I went over thinking I could get a green card because of my grandfather, which legally I could. And I got there, and I got a job in a massive grill house, a big smoke house that does smoked meat and barbecue and it was like nothing I've seen before. Five or six line chefs out the front, five or six prep chefs out the back that served between a thousand and thirteen hundred people a night. Mm. And it was just insane. First night I got put on meats on the grill. The grill was 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 eight the grill and the hot pan was eight feet long. Um I swear there was an angel on my shoulder that night because he said, Look the head chef said, look, you jump on there if you can do it. Sweet as, if it's too much for you, we'll have a beer and you can go your own way. And I tamed it. <laughs> Every single 
steak, every single burger. And he was just like, wow, I'll give you a pay rise. You can go on $10 an hour. And yeah, I got it. I got that job. Um, and then I went for my green card. And the lawyer said, yeah, yeah, of course. Just get your grandfather to sign here and your green card will get sent to you. And I kind of made the mistake, I guess, of saying, oh, he's dead. He said, well, do you have any other, you know, nuclear or immediate family? I said, no, he was the only one. He said, well, if he can't sign it, then you can't get it. Oh, shit. What am I going to do? I went back and told my work and they said, that's all right. You've just crossed the border like half the other kitchen members. And that's what I got. I just worked for cash for a while there and went snowboarding. And I don't know if I should print that, but... (laughs) um, But yeah, I worked in America doing that. That was great. Came back to New Zealand, back to the Powderhorn Chateau for a winter because it was 2008, we were in a recession. I just had to get a job somewhere and there wasn't a hell of a lot of jobs around. Mm. And I liked it. I went back. Um, got back with my girlfriend there. At the end of the season, uh, I applied for a job at a place called Pure in Hearn Bay with Stefan Leutscher. He was a young Michelin star chef from, from uh, Switzerland. And um, I, I got the job there as a chef to party, and that was amazing. He ran a 35-seat restaurant off two chefs, two front of house and a kitchen hand. That's the first time I really saw small restaurant that could make money ran efficiently it ran like a Swiss like a Swiss watch you know <laughs> so extremely precise and he was so extremely calm about everything he would not yell he would not lift his voice if I really pissed him off enough which I'm adept at at times um <laughs> I uh just he just wouldn't talk to me for a few days yeah <laughs> um but I, I really learned so much there halfway through there about seven or eight months in, uh, I was 22, and I got my girlfriend pregnant. And we go to the doctors, we find out that she's three months pregnant, and there's no turning back. So I said, well, this is us, we're having a kid. And that's my daughter, Tiger Lily, who's with me now, she's 12. Wow. Um, and I said, look, I'm not going to survive on $30,000 here in New Zealand, I, I can't get ahead. And I was always this really independent guy. I didn't want to ask my family for money or help or anything. I really wanted to do it on my own, which in retrospect was pretty stupid. I should have stayed around as much family as possible with my daughter on the way instead of going to a country I didn't know and you know in it. But hey, we do these things. Um, And uh, yeah, so I finished my year at Pure and then headed off to Australia for double the money. Right. Job with uh, Sean Connolly at Sean's Kitchen. Not that Sean was really there at all ever. Um, but Tony Gibson was our head chef, and he, he he was one of the young Gordon Ramsay boys who, who got trained by him and deployed around the world. And there, I just learnt high end cooking with velocity. It was insane. The Star Casino at Sean's Kitchen was 150 for lunch, 350 covers for dinner, 11 entire dishes on my station. It was insane i'd work 90 hour weeks no days off i actually had a heart attack there uh, two weeks before my daughter was born what um wow yeah they, they found me in bed uh bleeding out of every hole convulsing uh hyperventilating yeah and i got taken to the hospital and i was gone and then they i, I collapsed at the hospital and then i just remember waking up with ivs in my arm and the doctor saying you've had 
a type of a severe type of clinical burnout where all of your your nutrients in your body and minerals have depleted so much that your body just couldn't cope anymore yeah. and you had basically been running off adrenaline and caffeine and that's what we found prevalent in your system mm. oh shit okay so i was on there for three days and i was back to work and two weeks later my daughter was born and the casino just did not care about a human being as a whole trying to cut my parental leave short bring me in early and i just said stuff this i need to go work for it human again so I, all in all I'd done almost a year at the casino great learning experience and I made really good friends under fire there uh, who I'm still good friends with today would I do it again definitely not mm. um, would I recommend it for young chefs no but I would recommend working in very busy places where you learn high quality food at velocity just maybe not in a, a casino or a place where you're just a number to them well, I, I think it was interesting. I was reading something you said in a stuff uh, um, article about um, about those kinds of conditions and being yelled at and and um, and being in those very stressful conditions. And you talked about how you know your philosophy or your approach is that um, however whatever the atmosphere of the kitchen, it's probably reflected in the food. And I've always believe that as well there's a book called like water for chocolate and it's about this chef that whatever whatever she cooks her emotions at the time go into the food and the people eat it and um and and also have those emotions and so I think that's a really interesting it's an interesting idea and I'd like to think that things are changing now in the industry but I know there are still lots of places where people would have the same experience as you at that time of course and I, and I think there's always going to be a percentage of that. Um, side note, like Water for Chocolate is amazing. I've, I've read the book. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, but by and large, the industry is changing. People are changing. Um, staff shortages are also making uh, employers treat people better and more fairly. You know, you work out my career, and I worked over 40% of my career for free. Yeah. Because I was on a salary and working hours you know yeah. no? paid for 40 hours work 60 70 80 that was the way it was but i set out my first shift being congery was actually smart and saying look you can finish chef school go work in a hotel go work in a pub and and, and you'll top out at 70 grand a year and that's you you know whatever uh, and this was a day when i was asking what are all these things on the wall is like you don't know that's the top 50 award, that's the Beat the Lamb award, that's a, show me a wall full of awards. Wow, and set me off. And he said, look, or you can take 10 years and you work at the very best places you can get your foot into and you're going to be paid like shit, you're going to be treated like shit, but you're going to learn a lot like a sponge. And you take it up and after those 10 years, you'll come out into the industry and without a doubt, you'll always get paid over six figures. And it's true. It was like doing doing your, your degree as a doctor or or passing the bar as a lawyer. When you pass the bar as a lawyer, you come out and get paid 50 grand a year for the first few years. Mm. It's, it's long studies. It costs a lot. You don't get paid much. But then at the end, there you are on top of the world. <laughs> a yeah. few traumas and scars, but hey. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's, the, that's like my view on, on, on that side of things. 
But, well, uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, to go back to it, uh, I left the star um, uh, and went to a place called Flying Fish in Sydney, um, which was just around the corner. And it was, there's now a place called Sala in its place, and they moved Flying Fish into the casino. I was there with my friend who was there is now the executive, Adam Hall, uh, and have moved it into the casino. Still beautiful. But, um, that was, you know, inspiring because I stepped into this kitchen that had a big, Peter Kuravita was the celebrity chef, and then the head chef was Stephen Seckold, who was 28, running a kitchen of 20 staff, and was just hell-bent on getting the second hat back. And and we really pushed, and we really became a team, camaraderie. Of course, there was a bit of, you know, sabotage here and there from people, as, as what happens in the industry, but... Overall, it was a great experience. We worked bloody hard, didn't get paid a hell of a lot. I was there some days. I was there from seven a.m. till to one a.m. Um, whilst having a baby daughter. Um, but it was it was great. It was all open, open. You could see the ocean. The sun was on you. Unlike the casino, where there's no windows and no clocks. Mm. Um, I loved flying fish because I learnt high velocity cooking at an extremely high level but how a team runs cohesively together uh, and, 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 and really got a taste for the league that was above New Zealand. Because now I think we've equalised a bit, but mm. then it was, deli- you know, the level of food was more advanced. In New Zealand, we had Sid Sarawak, we had Michael Meredith, we had Des Harris. The, they were pushing, but by and large, the industry was, was behind what Australia was doing. And, and I, yeah, I was at Flying Fish for a year and a half, that was great. Uh, when I left there, uh, Larissa, my partner then, uh, Tiger Lily's mother, she really wanted to move to Wanaka. We had been for a ski holiday, and, and she said, this is the place. I said, okay, I like it too. The deal was we do two years for my career in Sydney, and then we go where well, you want to go for the next two years. Hers was Wanaka. So we made plans, and what we found was... Uh, there was basically no job in Wanaka at the time. Um, so we settled on Queenstown. Got to Queenstown. I worked with Josh Emmett at Rata for about a year. Um, I'm not going to comment on my time there. Uh, and then I went and worked for the Reeves Group. So I worked at Sasso with Sal Grant, who's an iconic kind of Italian chef here. And at the Reeves Hotel, I bounced between the two. That was my introduction to 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 what a working in a hotel was like and, and it wasn't for me working in a hotel it is for some people it wasn't for me the food at the reeds was really cool very molecular kind of food and the food at Sasso was very classical italian good hearty stuff um but i just got sick of working at a hotel i didn't like finishing a night shift at midnight and then having to be back there at five in the morning so I'd have to wake up at three in the morning to be back at work again for the for, for the breakfast shift the next day and that would happen twice a week. You're right. Um, basically I go forty eight to seventy two hours with no sleep and it just started ringing me out. Mm. So I resigned um, and I uh, headed to Matakodi Lodge with John O. Rogers um, just outside of Queenstown. And uh, that was just the next level of cooking. We we would have 30 guests at a time. While we were there, we got 
Condonas and Gourmet Traveller Top 10 in the World uh, Lodge Restaurant. Um, we, we were awarded Relay and Chateau, which is some days above Michelin. I don't know. Can't comment too much, but it's a very high accolade. Um, but it was intense. No guest was... We had a five-course menu and an a la carte menu. No guest was allowed to see the same ingredients twice during their stay. So you can imagine if you have 14, 15 sets of guests staying at one time, we could run up to nine menus in a night with only a team of four or five upholding what would be a, a, a two or three Michelin star standard. That's crazy. <laughs> that was crazy. Um, I'm actually going back first of February to help Jono out for a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Jono is an amazing friend, a very intense chef back then. I know he's calmed down a lot now, but he was a very intense chef, um, as was I, as was our friend Toshi, and we were the three musketeers, and we churned through staff, and we were the three that stayed. I was there for a year and a half, um, but it was hard. You know, you're there five, six days a week, you're not allowed to, you're changing the menu completely every day, running multiple menus, helping everyone out um, to extremely high standard. And, and I burnt out. I just completely burnt out. I got found in a golf buggy shaking uncontrollably and I'd had a mental breakdown, mm. um, unknown at the time. So Jono said, I, I really don't want to let you go. It's the best team I've had. Like, please, man. And I said, look, I'm dying here. I love you, but this is too hard. Um, so he tapered me down four days, three days, two days. And by the end, I was working one day a week and helping Tasso out another day a week. And I come in one day, I said, Jono, what am I doing here? I come in and make ginger chili sauce for a few hours because apparently I make it the best and, and chop some other stuff. But what use am I for one day a week? He said, ah, honestly, bro, I just like hanging out with you. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So... That was, uh, yeah, Matakari Lodge. Um, then I decided cooking wasn't for me anymore. Uh, and I stopped cooking. I, I went on a spiritual journey and said, I'm just going to see if the universe can take care of me. And I, and I full-heartedly believed in that. Mm. I, I have a strong belief in God or the universe, not a set religion, but that there is a greater force than us out there mm. and that we can depend on it in hard times. Um so, yeah, i done that, and then uh, one day I got this thought. You know, I was helping out at a friend's restaurant a couple of days a week, just casually, uh, back at Sasso, just casually, so not serious. Uh, I got a flatmate to help pay the mortgage. Larissa was working part-time and studying uh, business law and accounting, and we got by. And then one day I, I made a, a chili sauce. People came over and tried it. That's amazing. Yeah, I think it's pretty good, eh? So I started getting uh, a Mexican restaurant would give me all their old hot sauce bottles and I would fill it up and sell it on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Five bucks a bottle, I'll deliver it anywhere in Queenstown on a Tuesday. And it just went nuts to the point that a policeman knocked on my door. And he said, uh, I'm here with a warrant to search your property. I said, oh, crap. Because, uh, no, I don't want you going in there. Um, so told him oh, I'm selling hot sauce and he goes you're the hot sauce guy I'm the hot sauce guy he goes well 
I'm not going to search your house because you're the hot sauce guy because cars have been coming and going all the time out my driveway. So the neighbours had called. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I gave him a bottle of hot sauce and he went on his way. <laughs> and then I get a letter from the council saying, uh, we believe you're doing blah, blah, blah. And uh, Queenstown Council really was into uh, com- commerce growth back then. Um, and they took my hand, held my hand, and, and walked me through the process. And I got a part-time kitchen where a cafe would finish in the day, and I'd go and cook my hot sauce at night. And the hot sauce company, Franklin Heat, was born. Um, and I ran it. It done very well. It won a lot of awards. Um, I got to continue my, my, my journey as a full-time father and my, my spiritual journey to delve within and calm down. And Because before that, I had become your typical angry sous chef who could annihilate someone's entire life with a few words. Mm. You become quite good at it after being around it for a decade. Um, um, so I, uh, I done that. And then after a couple of years and a trip to the Peruvian jungle and back, I, uh, decided and saw in my, in my, in my mind's eye that, that yes, I'll be a chef and we'll move to Wanaka and it will work out. So we bought a property just outside of Wanaka for a good price. We, we built a home on it and, uh, I tried consulting for a while and didn't seem to be very good at that. So then I got a job uh, as sous chef at Bistro Gentil, who had just got their first hat. Um, and there was Mario, Mario Rodriguez. Um, and, and he was calm, very firm, but calm. Had a well-oiled machine. His kitchen ran well. He never yelled at anyone. The staff were happy there. And, and I just got the bug again and loved it. Six months in, and he moves me up to head chef. He goes to executive chef. I start writing parts of the menu, and and I really fell in love with it again. I, I didn't know I would. I turned up there telling him, "Look, I'm a skilled worker. I'm here to work. I'm not passionate. I, I don't have a love for the industry anymore, but uh, I'm good at this, and I can guarantee you because you're paying me that I will do my job to the best of my abilities." And he liked that. He he really was like, "Cool." That's all good. I understand workers work because they need money and they do a good job. But I fell in love again. They had an awesome organic garden out the back. and We had a gardener. And it was really great. Six months in, oh, I kind of got the Napoleon Hill thing can grow rich thing going on. Just think about it and it will happen. And I start telling people, I'm going to open my own restaurant. It's going to be all organic. It's going to be all wild meat. It's going to be all hand-caught fish. It's we're not going to use single-use plastics. We're going to change the way the industry views food. And, and, and if a restaurant had to be sustainable, that this would be the epitome of that. This would be the, the prime example. And then uh, family got together and sisters got together and, and the money came. And then the old Botswana butchery site popped up for lease. So we took it. We bought it. We took wow. it. We built hoes. Uh, I didn't have a 100% plan of what I was doing, but I had a good idea. What year was that? And that was 2017. Yep. Um, and I said, I'm just doing step menu. I want to go for hats. I want to make a mark on the industry. And we opened, and no one came. Oh, no. <laughs> We're a restaurant in a tourist town in a secret location. 
I had no idea about restaurant marketing. I had no idea about proper restaurant business. I was just a good chef. Some business stuff Larissa could handle. Um, first three months were tough. We're, we're in a South Island town where people want a la carte. People don't want to take on this new idea. Most local, most people thought when we said organic that that meant vegan. Right. <laughs> um, so we we tapped and we tapped, and after three months, I was pretty much bankrupt. And I called Anna Craig from Fever Pitch Media, which is now One Media, and she said, "I'm on my way." And she walked in the door like this glowing angel. <laughs> Where there was just a, an aura around this beautiful woman who walked in the room. And she sat down and said, look, let me pop the hood on this. She opens Facebook. She's like, oh, that's why that's not working. Opens my Instagram. Oh, yep, we'll connect these. We'll get it going. Gives me a media plan. We start organizing photographers. And we start getting going. Within a week, sales are up 30%. Wow. She's an angel. And then it started just kind of plateauing there. I said, look, I'm trying to start in a break even, but we're not making money. And she said, because then I said, I don't want my name on it. I don't want my face anywhere near it. I don't want the publicity or the fame. I just want the food to speak for itself. I want Ode to be a team thing. And she gently put her hand on the table one day, which is her equivalent of yelling, (laughs) and said, look, we need to sell the chef. We need to sell you. We need to put a face to the business so people can can accustom themselves to to who you are and connect the face to everything. We either sell the chef or you find someone else to do the marketing. And then I felt it. I said, okay, let's do it. And then the cameras came and then the photos and that all went out. We started selling the chef and I had to hold up mine, which was go live every day on Instagram, going foraging, because foraging was a big thing at Ode, yeah. going to farms and producers and, and giving shots of what's happening in service. And we'd do great things, like I'd be in service and, and there'd be 12 dockers up and, I don't know, 20 people dying, but it's going crazy, Ode's full, oh, look at everything happening, plating up. Really, the restaurant's half full, but hey, we had to create hype. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, some days it was full and it was going crazy, but people just loved seeing like, wow, I saw it, so I had to come in the next day and it worked. Or me foraging for apples on the side of the road and people were like, wow, I stopped at the same tree and took home a kilo of apples. It was delicious. <laughs> um, so and that went well. So And was it easy, ran, this whole, the whole sustainability thing and single-use um, plastic, it, I, feel, I feel that like that would still be quite a hard thing to do because of suppliers and different things as well was it how easy was it for you to do that extremely difficult yeah uh, in the beginning our food costs were really high we were using organic stores um evidently uh organic farmers at the time uh could barely even send a text message or even had a cell phone because uh they're organic farmers <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so that was hard. I'd have to drive out there and meet. And I met uh, Paul Kumarau and his wife. They had a garden out out Harwea, 15 minutes away. And I met Lorne Knight. He had another garden in Harwea. And then it just started coming together. We started getting more and more local suppliers. By the end, we had three or four local farms contracted to us that would basically buy everything they grew. Um, 
meats we started off organic and ended up just wild just using wild meat fish was the one where you kind of go down the conspiracy hole and find out that everything sustainable is a lie Mm. Mm. basically nate from gravity fishing doing his jig lining is the apex and 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 tim from uh spare court uh he does spare fishing and then a few hand harvesting people that do cowfish and stuff were our only options um so in the beginning it was extremely difficult but as time went by we got known and we reached out and, and, and more and more organic becomes normalized thing and it got better and better and by the end of it you know in peak season 90 percent of our produce came from within 50 kilometers or 100 kilometers it was all wild shot meat it was all hand harvested we used no glad wrap no no, no plastic gloves, no piping bags, no sous vide. We actually started filling the sous vide with beef fat and then putting the meat in there so we didn't even need a bag. Wow. And then you just tear it, bend it, good to go. We called it the fat vide. <laughs> <laughs> um, you clear it, cleanse it every day, and then use it for deep frying at the end of the week. Wow. Um, yeah, it was really, really, really cool system. Mm. Very symbiotic at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Uh but yeah, we, we we were in our first year. Chef Nico was with me, my amazing sous chef for my first year. Pumped through front of house, as the tourist town is. And um, a year in, uh, we get a review in Cuisine magazine, praising us, new young chef with a deft hand. And we got a hatted review, half a point off two hats for our first review. And then in the mail comes a letter. We've been invited to the Cuisine Good Food Awards. Wow, okay. We know we're we're in for an award now. That was Thursday. Friday night, Kelly Brett from Cuisine comes in to dine. Wow, Kelly Brett's here to dine. We know Kerry Tayak's been to dine once. That means we're in for an extra award. We we, we pretty much know we're going to get hatted at this point if it goes well. We're on cloud nine. We go on to a Saturday service fully booked, the, the, the website's crashed, the phone lines have gone bonkers, we're fully booked for the next five weeks, we're getting calls of congratulations, it's amazing, we've got a hat, it's finally after a year of struggle and hardship, it's happening, and on Saturday we're all exhausted, so we uh, go get the, the dryer out of the laundry, the, 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 the tea towels out of the laundromat next door, usually would fold them and put them away. This time we're exhausted. Oh, I've worked hard enough this weekend. Just throw them in the laundry bag and put it under the bar. Um, and I wake up Sunday morning. My daughter runs in the room with the phone. Yeah, Dad, it's Kevin King. That's our landlord. Amazing, amazing man. I said, Lucas, and I think it's going to be congratulations. I said, hey, Kevin. I said, uh, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. What's going on? He said, uh, Ode has burnt down last night. That was it. One day up, one day down. Oh, I'm just um, getting, I'm getting shivers just hearing you say that. I just, I can't even begin to imagine what you would have felt in that moment. Um, and what an extraordinary cause. I mean, I, because I, I did read that about the tea towels, and I was saying to my partner Charlie, um, how is that even possible? And he went, no, definitely, that kind of combustion can happen from 
um, yeah, just their expect. Well, I don't even, I don't really understand it, but um, it's pretty, mm. it's pretty specific, isn't it? <laughs> Moisture and oil with spontaneous combustion because of the electricity of spinning your clothes in a. I see. Right. Combusted room. That, but if you fold them, then it releases all of the electricity. I see. Wow. It's static. It's a static. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, I walked into Ode. It was just the most surreal feeling of my life outside of walking in, outside of seeing my daughter being born, that this was the other side where it was like, this is shit instead of this is amazing. Mm. Um, it was extremely surreal. I cried. I cried all day. I cried all night. Just couldn't fucking believe it. And then I had friends calling asking if I'd done an insurance job, which made it feel way worse. Absolutely. From my closest people... Wow. Asking me if I'm trying to get a free rebuild. Fuck, man. Yeah. We're on cloud nine here. Where, where, why would you burn your own restaurant down when you're fully booked for the rest of the year when you finally made it? Like, yeah. Yeah, it was fucking surreal. Mm. Really difficult. Yeah. Um, and then a few days in, I was like, wow, I've just been through something big. The media eye is on me. I've become one of the best chefs in the country. Yeah. Um, been invited to the award that no one's top 100 i know i've been hatted evidently uh, you know the hat was taken back but we still got to stay in top 100 and still got awarded the one to watch um so a few days later i said fuck it i'm gonna go on tour i'd been to watch kendrick lamar a couple months earlier i was like wow the way artists tour is really cool i'd love to do that as a chef mm. one day and then that just hit me i said i'm gonna do a tour Bottom of the South Island, top of the North Island. To promote organics and keep my spirit alive. And uh, I reached out on Instagram. And a bunch of other top 100 restaurants came forward. And two weeks later, I was on the road for a, for a five-week tour at 11 different restaurants, finishing with a private dinner at Clooney. Wow. Um, and that was amazing. Like, I felt the industry accepted me. I got taken under the wing by the by the biggest names chef of the year restaurant of the year three headers two headers one headers it was extremely good from for my spirit it was hard what musicians and artists go through touring that is an extremely difficult life um yeah it's not easy it's not it's not easy Mm. but it was amazing um but then after the tour the lights went out cameras turned off and it was just left with me and my thoughts and a massive insurance battle with an insurance company that was just giving us hell by the day trying to not pay for things etc you know how it goes mm. uh, my relationship deteriorated and I slipped into a pretty pretty deep depression yeah um, a year passed by and finally we get to reopen three one day off a year one day off indemnity period where we just have to take a check and walk away. Um, yeah, we reopened. I decided I will do all-day dining. Um, I was, I believe that we're walking magnets. The energy we're putting out is kind of what will reciprocate and, and, and bring back into our life. And I was in a bad way. I was smoking, drinking, just trying to keep my head up. Uh, too much time off, too much thought. And I, I built a, 
had built a by and large toxic team. Uh, yeah. I hired someone who I thought was a close friend of mine who ended up really screwing me over. Um, yeah, I won't go too far into that. Um, but How did you find your way out of that? Okay. How did you find your way through that? Well, through difficulty, really. There was no easy way out. Um, all day dining didn't work. Breakfast, the cafe was losing money. After three months, I said, stuff this. We're just going back for nighttime dining. Nighttime was doing great, but we were understaffed, overworked. Well, yeah, about three months in, Jack Foster, Chef Jack Foster turns up. says, I'll take any position you've got. If I, my commie chef's not working out, and he's been demoted to Kitchen Hand, who's still a great friend of mine today, um, and he's an amazing man. But Jack, that was Nicholas, but this Jack Foster came and he just put his head down and came in. My head chef at the time, I've got a bad feeling about this guy and I thought about it and I think I think your bad feeling is that he's going to show you up and he <laughs> did ten, tenfold um, yeah during a charity event one day the head chef just says I don't want to do this and walks out on us his girlfriend was the manager they walked out on us on the same day tried to send lawyers after us all of this crazy stuff which we got through but Jack was, was Jack was like a rock during that time he just took it on and instantly up to sous chef, me and him doing, you know, 40 covers doing eight course dinners. You know, that's a lot of dishes to go out in three hours. Mm. He was there early every day with me. He was there late every day with me. He was prepping after service with me. He never complained once. Um, but he was staunch and forthcoming and would tell me if something was working, would tell me if I was sending mixed messages and it was really good for me. Um, and we became great friends and great, great workmates. That was, he is a large part of how we got through it, how I got through it. Mm. He came from a family with strong morals, strong connections. He knew who he was in himself, and, and that was a great example for me to have around. At the same time, I had a culinary skill that he wanted, and I said, look, forget everything you know. Everything here is different. Just forget it all and learn again. I swear he almost quit on the spot when I said that. Apparently he went and talked to his, his, his parents and his grandparents about it, and they said, hmm, maybe there's something to learn there. Hang in there just for a little while longer, and he did. And um, he learned a lot. And then uh, not long in, I said, hey, put a dish on the menu. Put a dish on the menu. It was beautiful. Asparagus and uh, confit egg yolk dish. Um he helped us through. So from there on, it started going really well. We just had a nine-month run where it was just epic. We got our hat back. We made it into the top 50. We started winning awards in other divisions. Um, the workplace was healthy. The people who worked there enjoyed working there. Um, my life became better, and uh, everything was going really well. We were making money. We were popular. We had a good relationship. And then uh, lockdown. Yeah. Yep. Probably yeah. lockdown probably came uh, a couple months after we got our hat back. Yeah. Mm. That sucked. But I called it like a few days before uh, the dictator locked our country down. We, I said, look, this is crazy. 
I don't know if this is a media hoax. I don't know if this is real, but I'm fucking anxious. And if someone comes in here coughing and spluttering, everyone gets anxious and the workplace environment feels horrible. I'm going to shut it down because the rest of the world is locking down. I reckon in two weeks, our streets are going to be empty. They're going to lock everyone in their homes. And that's what's going to happen. Everyone told me I'm crazy. I'm a conspiracy theorist, blah, blah, blah. I said, whatever. I know how to read the world. It's not that hard. And then a week later, she locked it down. The streets are empty. We're all locked in our houses. So we did have a run a week where I was just selling everything out. And I thought, oh, maybe we'll get locked down for a month. Maybe we'll go to Sweden or the Japan route and, you know, we'll keep commerce going and, 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 and rely on science where we've learned that. You know, you've just got to push through it and you build an immunity, et cetera, et cetera. But it turned into an almost four-month lockdown and we were losing 30 grand a week, which was extremely stressful. The time off was great. really was. Family time was great. But losing 30 grand a week was extremely stressful. So we came back out. I didn't have enough money to reopen O's. I didn't have money to pay my staff. I told everyone that. I said, look, it's apple season apple trees everywhere we've got a great community around us we're not going to do the takeaway thing we decided no because Wanaka had enough establishments to feed 100,000 people a day and there's only 8,000 locals so we thought nah that's just a waste of our very limited resources but right at the end I said we're going to do apple crumble so I've done a post one night pretty much uh, lockdown it ended people were allowed to do takeaways takeaways was ending and people were allowed to open up for commerce again under whatever fucking life thing that was... In my mind, we were allowed to go back to living our lives again. That's all that mattered. So we're going to do apple crumble. I put the word out saying, can anyone donate us apples or if you have an apple tree, we'll come and pick it. If anyone has any uh, flour, sugar, um, or oats or butter, please donate. We would love it support O help us get open again and then I uh, I put out a post saying apple crumble ten dollars feeds four people uh free delivery crazy enough free delivery anywhere in Wanaka <laughs> uh that was about 8 p.m I woke up the next day to heaps of missed calls from my manager at the time I called she said what did you do I said oh crumbles we'll sell a few hundred of them she's like we're up to 890 and counting 891, 897, fucking 900. Turn the thing off. Shit. And then there was just my inbox full of, we've got apples, we've got apple trees, Uh, we've dropped off 20 kilos of flour to your door, we're dropping off sugar today, there's a box of butter you're coming your way. We got donated everything. Um, We done three weeks of crumble. It went viral, uh, it hit the viral on Instagram. We had celebrities from Canada buying crumbles to pay forward to the frontline workers. Wow. <laughs> it really, really just went nuts. Um, I can't remember exactly how much, but we done it for three weekends, and we sold something like three point something tons of crumble. Wow. Delivered. Yeah. Uh, we downloaded the same app Domino's uses for delivery, because the first delivery day was so haphazard. I was like, we need a better system. How does Domino's do it? We studied it. We downloaded their app, used the free trial for a month thing, and uh, that helped a lot. We had all the staff cars, all of our staff cars packed to the roof of Crumbles. We had all the chefs in the kitchen just 
chopping apples, roasting apples, covering it in crumble. It was insane. Um, yeah, three tons of crumble. Uh, and then at the end of it, I was just, oh, we've got enough money to open on the sniff. And then we hit up our hunters from Fair Game. I said, look, anything you can give us a cheap deal on, we want to do a ribs night, a fundraise. And they said, nah, you're cool. We will provide all of the ribs on the house. We just want to see you open again because we love what you do and you're a great customer. Cool. So Fair Game sent us, I can't remember how much, a lot of venison ribs. We done a rib night fundraiser. That made an extra seven, eight something grand. And then we had enough money to, to stock the restaurant and reopen. It was all from, from the love of community. That really felt amazing. Reopening to that, we decided to put on a la carte so the locals would like it more because we had no more international trade. Um, we decided to, to simplify a bit, um, be more casual while still holding a high standard. And that went well. You know, that was all good pumping things were going well we're only open three nights a week which was great and then lockdown came again we lost all the money again that bloody sucked um yeah so i said ah we tried to reopen it didn't work so ah, this is it oh over sorry everyone the restaurant's closing uh unless we can find investors but I said that three weeks out from closing and we just got so much overwhelming support. People coming in, buying the most expensive bottles, buying as much food as they can. We had customers coming in and just giving us envelopes full of cash to be like, just keep the fucking place open. (laughs) We want you here. Um, And we got pumping again. And and that was amazing. I built the strongest team I've ever had. uh, by the end of it, the last three, four months, my family had moved to Auckland. So I let Jack take over as head chef. I became executive. Jacko took over a majority of the menu, of which I taught him a lot of what he, he knew. People loved it. A lot of people said, oh, it's not going to be the same without you. It won't work. Lies. It made more money than it ever made. <laughs> we had more five-star reviews than I'd ever seen in my life. It was amazing. My team was so good. We had Lucy Creston over out the front. Um, we had Elliot Hawkins on the bar. We had Jack Foster and his his team in the kitchen. And I could come up and down, check on things. If we wanted to make a change, we'd just talk about it. And, and the symbiosis was amazing. The place made a lot of money. Um, and then a friend in politics called and says, it's not over, man what do you mean, my, my tweeting little bird? <laughs> he said, look, you guys are going to have another lockdown. I said, ah, oh. but if I say this, you're going to think I'm a conspiracy theorist again. He goes, well, what have I told you before? When did I tell you to buy a house? When did I tell you to, to stop things up? He was right every time. He said, it's not over. It's going to happen again. I said, oh, shit. That stressed me out. It really stressed me out. Um, started having problems, liver problems, my, my my mental state was degrading, just being under the anxiety, knowing at any moment they can just turn it off, and that this lockdown was going to be the harshest one of all, even though we know this disease, 99.9 something percent of people survive it, so it's really going to not make sense and really mess with people's minds. I knew it was coming, 
in my house just degraded and degraded. So I went in and I told the team, look, I'm going to sell Ode. I can't do this anymore. It's going really well. We've got our hats. We make money. Let's finish on a high. If we go through another lockdown and it's harsher and there's less support, I'm not going to make it. We're going to lose it all. And I'm going to be, you know, up to my neck in debt. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle that. So we put it up to sale. Pretty quickly, someone made an offer. We bartered back and forth. I kept the IP for Ode. They started their new restaurant there. I helped them get it going. And we sold Ode. And that was the end of Ode. Um, two weeks before our handover date to the new owners, she called lockdown. And that was our longest and harshest and most confusing lockdown. Yes, let's lock down the whole South Island, even though no one's got COVID. Let's lock down the whole North Island. Let's lock Auckland inside Auckland. But hey, 99.9% of people survived this, so you better be scared. Crazy, crazy stuff. Now, looking back, I think I made the right decision. Uh, I wouldn't have coped mentally or physically going through another lockdown, having a restaurant that goes backwards 30 grand a week. Um, But yeah, just in those two weeks, she called lockdown. We had to shut it down. In those two weeks, cost $100,000 and that was basically all our savings, our nest egg at the time. Um, that was that was the end of it. We, we had a fully stocked restaurant for our last two weeks. They were our two highest earning weeks we would have ever had in history, in our history, because uh, everyone was booked on a five-course executive menu. Um, everyone was on a on wine matching or drinks matching so we knew exactly how much money we were going to make and it was a substantial amount to get us out and take a year off enjoy life um and then so we stocked up two weeks before and the day all of our deliveries arrived all our wine arrived all our food arrived pretty much everything except the little daily garnishes arrived and she called lockdown that day so it just goes to show that yeah the lockdown mentally economically it's just really stuffed things up um but we sold we still sold the deal went through we we got to sell off the food at cost price for takeaway options just to have a team and have a closing night and have a party together um and we ended it uh it came out the money was gone but we got our money from the new buyers that paid back all of our debts, paid our staff, and came out just even keel. Start again. Wow. And so when was that? That was winter 2021. Yeah. September. September 5th, we closed, 2021. Wow. Uh, Yeah. And then I'm going to take a year off and spend it with my daughter. Mm. Her mother took her to Wellington, and they got locked down there, and I got locked down in Auckland. So I didn't get to see my daughter for four months. Mm. Um, that really fucked me up. Mm. Uh, but now I'm pretty much full-time father. Um, her mother runs luxury yoga retreat down in Queenstown and comes up often, and they have a good relationship. I mean, we, we are uh, mostly good co-parents, mostly get along yeah. as much as we can. <laughs> Um, and, uh, yeah, just, uh, took a year off. That was great. 
got into full-time dad and cooking meals at home, getting her ready for school, you know, walking down the driveway with her to school. I'm not allowed to walk all the way to school because that's not cool. (laughs) (laughs) Dad! (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was a great year. And then a few months ago, I decided that uh, I'd like to open up again. So talked to the banks and they said, no, we're not giving you any money. You haven't made any money. Oh, shit, what am I going to do? They said, look, you still own the company. You need to start putting money through the company. And then once you show you're, you, you know, you're making good money, then we can finance you. So I started freelancing a couple months ago and I've been bouncing around New Zealand uh, when I have the time and around Auckland doing freelance work, which is great money to actually get paid by the hour. <laughs> so so what does that mean, though, as a freelance chef? So not, not just a private chef, or is it that? I do private work as well. Um, but that is... Uh, doing private gigs is a large undertaking. It's like opening a new restaurant every time you go to work. Um, well, yeah, because you... Freelancing... You, yeah. Sorry. I was going to say, you need all the cro- do you need all the crockery and stuff, or do you, can you use people's in their home? I got or- it. I've got it. Oh, so okay. when we bartered over owed, they said, we want to give you this amount. I said, okay. Oh, I'm going to take the Paco jet. I said, ah, oh, okay, we'll keep that offer. And I said, ah, oh, I want to keep the thermo mix. I said, ah, oh, but we want this price. I'm going to keep all of my custom-made owed crockery. Okay. Oh, well, I'm going to keep some of the equipment, frying pans, uh, a bunch of stuff. I've got everything to start a small restaurant. Okay. Out of my garage. Wow. <laughs> So we we eventually came to a good agreement that was fair for both of us. Got me out of debt, um, and I was really banking on that last, you know, hundred and fifty grand to give us a year off and travel and whatnot. But that fell through. But we got out of debt, and that was a great feeling. Yeah. I owe no money to no one at the moment. Um, and so this freelancing freelancing, freelancing gig. Freelancing what freelancing does- is you're basically. A bounty hunter. I went out uh, saying, I'm going to do consulting. What we have is this paradox in the industry in New Zealand right now. I can't speak for anywhere else in the world because I'm not there. But in New Zealand, um, we have had a massive cull of the industry where in the last two and a half years, 70% of our hospitality industry has closed permanently. A few restaurants have filled the spots, but by and large, there's a lot less restaurants. Over 90% of our tourism industry has closed permanently. That was our largest earner in industry in New Zealand, and that collapsed. Um, slowly making its way back, but it's, it's rough. When you get into the statistics of what lockdown's done, it, it, it's so ugly that it's hard to talk about. Mm. Um, but here we are. So... Being freelance, I set out to be a consultant. No one really needed a consultant because everyone who was left were well-oiled machines that are going hard and making money, but they're buckling at the knees because of staff shortages. I call around the world, every country, every industry, can't find staff. Where's all the humans gone? What's happening to them? Who knows, but this is where we are. Yeah. So I backed back and people started asking me, can you just come and help us? We need skilled hands. They're sure, but consulting wages are quite high. It's renegotiated, so we renegotiated a, a better price for them. And then that was November. 
and I've just got a big list of people who need help. It's, it's basically the restaurant industry buckling at the knees from, from staff shortage and, and uh, people who got locked up for too long who just want to get out as often and as much as possible to enjoy the luxuries and pleasures of life and, and dining and drinking in New Zealand is one of those. So that's what I've been doing. I, wow. I walk into a restaurant with my uniform and my knives and I just do whatever they need, whether it's filling in for the head chef, where it's, whether it's chopping garnish, where, where anything really, I'm skilled. Um, mm. I get paid handsomely for it, and my company starts making money, and the next step is uh, opening my my next place up again. Yeah. Um, and that would be in Auckland, or? It area? will be in Auckland. Yeah. However, I've studied the world economy. I studied Japan, because I thought, wow, They've been through huge inflation, massive crashes, world wars, but they've held the highest end of dining for hundreds of years. Japanese cuisine is simple, it's beautiful, it's very well done. We all know Japanese cuisine is amazing. Look at sushi, it took over the world. Mm. Um, so I studied their economy and I studied their, their, their hospitality economy and how they've made it through. You have to imagine that one yen used to be equivalent to one American dollar. Now it's, you know, a few hundred yen for a, for a chocolate bar or something, um, a block of chocolate, maybe not 90 or so, but it, it, the, the inflation rate changed so dramatically. So I looked how they done it and how they preserved their culinary culture was through small restaurants, usually less than 10 seats with one to two people working in them. And that way they could always adjust to inflation and adjust to the market. Yeah. They've always short staff which is their thing, what they do. You know, post-war, it's not a lot of workers. During a recession, there's an overload. That's when they can make bigger places. And I really studied hard what it is they're doing there. And I decided, well, I'm healthy, I'm young. Um, there's staff shortages. I'm going to open an eight-seater. I love cooking. I love customers. love the connection between us. We had an open kitchen at O, the chef's table, and I really loved that. I decided that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to open an eight-seat restaurant where it's just me and the customers. That's awesome. Yeah. Will it be, is it sort of omakase style but but Western food? And will it, will it be a set menu? or? In my mind, I imagine it'll be a set menu, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it'll be based around how services run in these small Japanese places, however, with the knowledge and, and, and style that I have as, as a chef and as a person. Mm. So that, that's where I'm aiming to go. And while I'm freelancing, I'm saving up my money and trying to get enough leverage that I can step in and do that again. Uh, watching that restaurant, Chai in Melbourne, C-H-A-E. Yes, yeah, and, and and that was hugely inspiring. That wow, they got a hat out of an apartment. That that's really something. And then that built up, and now they've got their own epic little place out in the forest. And yeah, it's pretty amazing that story, isn't it? Yeah. Oh wow, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Good so, for you. I feel like so. What would be? I mean, obviously, you've really well. You've had to learn some hard 
lessons but the things that happened to you that were really beyond your control so it's not really about asking what would you have done differently because I don't think <laughs> you know that's not not really the question but um what do you take from all of this obviously you still want to cook which is amazing what's your take from this roller coaster experience uh personally what I've learned is that the bigger the highs the bigger the lows Mm. Um, and that sometimes you need to even that out a bit. Uh, not focus so much on the highs being so high. If you win a hat, that's amazing and that's great and congratulate yourself. Um, yeah, so evening that out a bit. Also, after taking a year off, learning that having your daily purpose is an important thing and, and uh, without it, you know, whether you're a full-time parent that has to look after multiple children and care for the home and make sure that's running well, that is a purpose. Whether you're the mother or father on the side that has to go out and work every day and, and bring home the money and make sure things are paid for, then that's the purpose. But having a purpose that fills your day is a really important thing for a human being. Mm. Um, and being just full-time father this past year and being a chef, so I work fast, I found myself with too much idle time. And uh, then I start overthinking. And, and, and after a while of it, it starts as meditation and ends as, as, as looping thoughts and overthinking. Yeah. Um, and, and reading a lot of books on financial education. We are not taught financial education whatsoever in our school system. No. no basically, a majority of our country or the Western world has no idea about how money works, how finance works, how financial education works, how stocks and bonds work, how gold and silver works, how how the rich stay rich, how people finance themselves, how people get ahead. But learning and reading many, many books about these people, their autobiographies, their, their, their books on financial education, uh, you come to find that they might be a billionaire but they still go to work every single day because they love what they do and they need that daily purpose. And they could get many more billions. They're not going to stop and they're not doing it because they're greedy, but a lot of them are not doing it because they're greedy. They're doing it because they enjoy what they do and they love their daily purpose. And even though they could be 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, they don't want to stop because when you sit around doing nothing all day, you get bored and you go a bit crazy. Mm. So that's what I take from it. Even out the highs and the lows and don't put too much emphasis, you know, congratulate yourself, but don't have too much emphasis on the highs and the lows. And to to have your, your daily purpose. And I found that I didn't get into this industry to get rich. I fell into this industry because I stumbled into it. And I stumbled into it and fell in love. And I fell in love with it for the love of it, not for the money of it. Obviously, being paid is great. We all love money. It's a good thing. If we've got enough of it, um, the more money you have, the more you can help the world around you if you're that way attuned. Something I like to do. I like to do charity work. I like to help people. Um, but the main thing was the daily purpose. And this is a daily purpose that I love. Uh do I love running a 400-seat restaurant? Not really. Do I love running a 30-seat restaurant? Yeah, it was a good experience, and I thought that's exactly what I wanted. But then after doing some small dinners and having in 
this intimacy with the customer and the full experience of being able to speak to them and explain every little thing and they're, and they're fully you're fully engaged with each other as as, as, as guests and as chefs it's just this amazing feeling and 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 i want to hone in on that and people say well what if you get sick oh well i close the restaurant for a night it's fine yeah what if you want a saturday off same thing i close the restaurant for a night it's fine it's only eight people uh in in, in the west we have the saying no man is an island in japan they have a saying every man is his own island <laughs> <laughs> yeah in the West, we say uh, there are opportunities and crisis. In Japan, opportunity and crisis are the same word. Wow. Mm. So it's all about how we see things. The older I get and the more hardship I go through, the more I learn that perception is almost everything. How we perceive it and how we get through it. And, and that having our daily purpose, learning about financial education, and also finding gratitude and love in the world is, is something we need. It's not to say I'm a perfect person. I still get in bad moods. I still get angry. I can still have a grump at my daughter or, or my family members or my friends or, or, or become upset at, at, at things in the world that I can't control. But these are natural human emotions, and especially for someone of my mindset, being through trauma, of having PTSD, of growing up in a rough neighborhood, um, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be the super calm monk that I was once portrayed through media and somewhat. Part, that's part of who I am. There is a very calm side to me. There is a very loving and grateful side of me. There's, there's also the evil and the devil and, 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 and a very tough and rigid person. But as I get older, I learn that that's something that we should have. We should know how to use, but most important that we learn how to control that and that's what I'm going through is learning how to control all of that the older I get the more I learn how to control that I think it's been great as well uh, getting into martial arts with my daughter started off I wanted her to be able to defend herself so we enrolled her at uh, jiu-jitsu and MMA down at Oliver Gym here in Auckland in New Lynn and <laughs> I'd go and watch her train and then afterwards, the, the, the advance would come on. Notice, wow, there's a man in there who's 70 years old. And he's rolling. And he's doing it. I'm sitting here on the sidelines watching, 33, 34 years old. I've just turned 35. Thinking, ah, you know, I'm too old to learn, blah, 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 whatever. Oh, jumped in there. I got in there about nine months ago, and it pretty much changed me. Mm. Feels great to exercise. When you've got demons in you, you need to exercise them the same word <laughs> yeah yeah um so martial arts has been a great thing to help me as well because it teaches someone that you are very dangerous you can be very violent but at the same time you're so extremely controlled that you know what to do with it i agree with what you know jordan peterson will say on we need to be able to be dangerous but we need to be able to control it there's no use in being a weak man or a weak woman and then losing control that's when we see the worst of things happen that's when we see these school shootings that's when we see these these crazy fights of people swinging around on facebook and instagram and that 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 violence and danger uncontrolled but then when you go to a jiu-jitsu tournament or, or an mma fight 
you see, wow, that's very rough. People can get hurt and broken, but it's so extremely controlled. And that's where I think people learn that. And that's part of what I've taken away from all of these hardships and massive highs and massive lows is that we just have to sit with our dark side, learn about it, and then learn how to control it. And then a better day comes. Yeah. Look, Lucas, thank you so much. I feel like you've you've been so open and honest and shared so much. That's an incredible story and incredible what you've you know your how you've worked through this um, for yourself as well. So, thank you. I'm really glad you got in touch with me. <laughs> <laughs> I've been I've been following and, and 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 listening and reading to what you do for for a while now, and I really liked it. Um, and I just having a beer the other night. I thought, ah, maybe should be interested in my story. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely am, and um, yeah, I can't, I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Conversation with a Chef with Lucas Parkinson. You can check out his food on Instagram at Luke underscore Soul. That's L U C underscore Soul, and also at Ode underscore Hospitality. And if you liked what you heard, I'm on Instagram also at Conversation with a Chef, and you can read the chat at www.conversationwithachef.com. I would love it if you told a friend about my chats, and of course, you can follow me on Apple and Spotify podcasts. Once again, thanks for listening, and have a great day. <laughs>